Well, it is a privilege and wonderful to be with you all in the new year. Many people have a tradition on New Year's Eve to make a New Year's resolution. Now, some of you might be naysayers who refuse to make those New Year resolutions. Uh, but I think that making a resolution to do good is always a good thing. In fact, when people usually say, I refuse to do a New Year's resolution, it goes something like this. Every year I make a New Year's resolution and I never fulfill it. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm just not going to make one at all. I fail every year, so I'm just going to accept defeat. Well, I think that's a wrong perspective. I think if you seek to do something good and you make any strides toward doing that which is good, you have been a success. Because it was better than doing nothing. Making two Steps in the right direction is better than making no steps in the right direction, and a whole lot better than making two steps in the wrong direction. So as you may or may not have made a New Year's resolution, and may, may or may not have convinced you that you should have made a New Year's resolution, let me just ask you this. Uh, if you did make one, what was it? The most popular New Year's resolution, anybody know? Shout it out there. What was it? Lose weight. Lose weight. Yeah, that's an American popular New Year's resolution, right? Especially coming off the holidays. Eat, 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 eat. Gain about 10 pounds and, okay, we're going to lose weight. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with wanting to look good, wanting to be slim, wanting to be healthy. Nothing wrong with that. But hopefully that wasn't your only New Year's resolution. Let me propose to you two New Year's resolutions that I think everybody in this room should make one or the other of these resolutions. The first is this. Do you know the Lord? Do you know God? If you would die tonight and you stand before God, what would he say to you? Would he say, depart from me, you work for iniquity, I never knew you? Or would he say, well done, good and faithful servant, inherit the joy of your master? Do you think about these things? Do you care about your soul? If you're not saved, do you know it? The worst thing is for you to think you're saved and not be saved. But some of you, I bet you there's somebody in this room who knows they're not saved. You know it. You know it's true. You know if the Lord came back, you would shrink back in fear and in shame and terror because he would not say, well done, good and faithful servant. He would cast you straight into the lake of fire where the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. And so if that's you, if you've been on the fence, if you've been someone who thinks, I'm going to get saved, but just not today, I pray that your New Year's resolution would be, I'm going to get right with the Lord this year. And I'm not telling you to get right with the Lord six months from now, 12 months from now. I'm telling you to get right with the Lord today. You can make that New Year's resolution today, this morning. You can fulfill it. You can make it and fulfill it by calling upon the name of the Lord. And we'll talk about that more in the sermon. Here's a second resolution, which I hope is more true for most of you. Some of you aren't saved. But I pray that most of you came out this morning because you love Jesus. Because he changed your life. Because you are saved. Because if he did show up, you would not shrink back in fear. But you would say, my hope, my joy, my salvation is here. Right? If that is you, if you are a Christian, if you have come to taste and see that the Lord is good, I pray that your New Year's resolution would be to grow in the Lord. I think too many Christians are satisfied with just being saved. You're just satisfied that you have your hell insurance, your fire insurance, that your soul is saved. You ever wondered why you're still here? Are you here to eat, live, and be happy for tomorrow you die? Are you here just to entertain yourself to death? Are you here to just have fun? To be giddy? Is that why you're here? Is that why God left you here? Or is it to be useful? To be fruitful? To do some kingdom work? And you know, kingdom work often looks like loving your neighbor. Right? I pray that if you are a Christian, your goal this year would be to mature. I've been reading Hebrews a lot. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, you know what he says? He says, some of you have been saved for a long time. Some of you have come to know the Lord a long time ago. And guess what? You ought to be teachers. But guess what? You're not. You're not teachers. You're babes. You're babes. You're children. You need someone to disciple you. You need someone to teach you. You can't teach anybody. Right? Because you're a babe. You need milk. But you need to go on to meat. So I pray that if that's you, and really that's all of us, we can all grow. Maybe we're not all babes, but we can all grow. That we would say this year, Lord, get a hold of me. Kill some idols in my life. Make me more like you.
All right, let's go into our Bible text. We're going to be reading from 3 John. Open your Bibles to 3 John. We'll begin in verse 1. He says this, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. But I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Beloved, you do faithful whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who are born witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a matter worthy of God, you do well, because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers of the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to have preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that. He himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish putting them out of the church. But, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he does evil has not seen God. And we'll stop there. So, the little epistle of Third John, a tiny little epistle, but a rich and beautiful epistle, begins with the author. He's described simply as the elder. If you have a more dynamic translation, we could render this simply the old man. This is the elder, possibly referring to the church office, also possibly just referring to the fact that he's old. This is John in the, the latter days. These are some of the last pieces of scripture written in the Bible. John was so old that sleep people started to think maybe he wasn't going to die. Remember that, Pastor Neil? Remember that sermon? Jesus said when Peter asked, what about this man after the Lord said to Peter that he was going to be crucified, he was going to die? He said, what about this man? What about John? He says, what if, he, what if it's my will for him to stay until I come? What is that to you? You follow me. And then it says that some people started saying John was not going to die. And that started looking more and more likely as all the other apostles died off. And John kept on living. Right? He kept on living. He was an old man. And now he writes this little epistle and he says, I'm the old man. I'm the elder. I'm the pastor. Now, I think there's something informative about this. In both 2 John and in 3 John, he identifies himself this way. John, the senior pastor. John, the pastor. John, the old man. And I think there's something noteworthy about this. Because he could have identified himself in a whole bunch of different ways, right? He could have said, John, the great apostle. John, the only apostle that is left alive. John, the greatest. No, he doesn't do that. But rather, he takes pretty much the worst title he could possibly give himself and still be identified. If he just said John, it's probably too, uh, too common. Yeah, actually, he doesn't even say John. He didn't even put his name out there. He just says the elder, the old man. And what this shows us is that it shows us John's humility. He's not wearing his credentials on his sleeves. He's not obsessed with pushing around his weight. He knows who he is, and he knows that other people know who he is. He is simply sufficient with identifying himself as John, the senior pastor, John, the elder John, the old man. Now, let me ask you this question. Are you that kind of person? Are you the type of person who is not obsessed with putting themselves first? Are you the type of person that's okay with simply being called Bob, Sue, Sally, Joe? Are you okay with that? Or are you looking always for an opportunity to talk about what you've done? Talk about who you are, right? Talk about your credentials. You're always trying to find an opportunity to mention your PhD, if you have one. You're always looking for opportunity to mention that you're a CEO, that you're a boss, that you're a GS-13, that you're this, that you're that, right? You're always looking for that opportunity to reveal that you're something special. Or are you the type of person who has all those accomplishments and is just okay with being Bob, 
just okay with being Sam, whoever you are. We should have this attitude. It's an attitude of humility. It's an attitude of meekness. It's an attitude of saying, I have some things that I could boast about. Not that I don't have the things to boast about. I have the things to boast about, but I can cover them. I don't need you to see them. I don't need your jealousy, your acclamation, your affirmation. This is called modesty. Isn't that what modesty is? Modesty is not you have nothing to show so you don't show it. That's not modesty. That's common sense. Right? There's nothing modest about you having nothing and therefore not wanting to show what you don't have. But what is modest is when you have something. Something looks good. Something is good. Something is worthy of praise. You're Mr. Muscle Man. You have great biceps, but you cover them. You have great pectoral muscles, but you don't wear the tightest shirt you could possibly have so everybody can see your muscles. Does that make sense? This is humility. This is what we have here in John. He has these affirmations, these things that he could boast about, but he doesn't. He just says, I'm the elder, I'm the old man. This is the way of Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Not the pride, not the proud, not the boastful, the meek. In James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In 1 Peter 5, 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. See, humility is not forever not being exalted. Humility is saying, I don't need to be exalted today and by you. I'll be exalted tomorrow and by God. Because one day, he will exalt you. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful quote. And he says, do you realize that you never meet a mere mortal? That everyone that you meet is an immortal. And when it comes to Christians, these people one day will be glorified and so beautiful, so radiant, so powerful, so amazing, that if you were to see them of what they will be today, you'd be tempted to worship them. Do you believe that? Because the Bible teaches that. That one day will be glorified, will be beautiful, will be radiant, will be amazing. One day God will highly exalt us. We need to be patient for that day instead of trying to steal the glory today. But something tells me that some of you, and this is true of me too, at times, are trying to steal the glory today. Today you want to be that radiant being. Today you want the praise and affirmation of men. I was talking to a teenage girl, and she was all into uh, celebrities and musicians. And I was like that when I was a teenager too. I wanted to be a famous basketball player. I'm 5'9". It didn't happen. It was never meant to happen. No one told me that. They should have. But that's beside the point. She wanted to be a famous singer. And she was saying that her dream was to go and play her music. And to get on stage and all the lights. And for everybody to shout her name. I'm telling you, that's not my dream. I don't want none of you shouting my name. But maybe that's some of your dream. Maybe some of, there's an allure to that. Everybody's shouting your name. Everybody's saying you're famous. Everybody remembering you. Maybe it's not that, but maybe you want to be a famous theologian. Maybe you want to be a social media star. Maybe you want something. Something to give you self-aggrandizement. And there's something not bad about that, but there's something that is bad about that. When you want that here on earth, that's bad. If you just want that, period, that's good. In Romans chapter 2, it talks about people who desire honor. They desire glory, but they desire it in the right way. They desire it by God, not by men. And God will give you that glory one day if you seek it from him. In Psalm 115, verse 1, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory for the sake of your steadfast name and your faithfulness. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. That is what the Christians should be doing. We should not be glory thieves, but glory reflectors. There's a difference, right? One thing to be a glory thief, trying to steal the glory that rightfully belongs to God alone. It's another thing to be a glory reflector, to say God is glorious and I, like a mirror, shine the light of God so that you can see him. Right? It's totally different. But guess what? In the end, the image that you're seeing is still glorious. If somebody comes up here and sings a beautiful song, we see glory, don't we? It's glorious. 
And my small group, I have some, I'm just going to brag about my small group. I have some of the best singers in this church. If you're one of the best singers, you join my small group too. And we can enjoy hearing your voice as well. And I love it. It's incredible. You hear their voices. It's beautiful. It's glorious. But hopefully, and I believe this is true of them, they're not glory thieves. But I'm seeing God's gifts in them, and I'm praising God for them. Right? You've, you've probably all seen this. You have a wonderful singer, and you can see the difference between someone trying to magnify themselves and someone trying to magnify God. That's what we should be doing. We have gifts. Each one of you has something glorious about you. But don't try to steal the glory. Take it away. Say, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We should look for an opportunity to boast about God and not boast about ourselves. So here's the point of all this. John here serves as a positive example of humility. And we have him contrasted with another fellow, another person. Now look down to verse 9. We're going to see the contrast. John is the humble. Diotrephus is the arrogant, the proud, a glory thief. Now look at verse 9. John says, I write... I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, talking nonsense against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So here, this individual, which we only find here, you may have never heard of him. Diotrephes, you may have never heard that name. He's one of the obscure people of the Bible. But I hope after this sermon, you'll know this guy. In fact, you've met this guy. In fact, some of you are this guy. Now let's look at this person. He is, again, the exact opposite of John. John is an apostle. John is top dog. John is CEO. John is the head of the church, right? The Pope is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. But at one point, there were human people that were head of all churches. And their name were the apostles. The apostles were large and in charge. You can see this if you look at 1 Corinthians as an example. You have the apostle Paul finding out there's a whole bunch of sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. You remember this? There's a man who has his stepmother. And what does, John, what does uh, Paul say? Get this guy out of here. In fact, he says, I judge him. I excommunicate him from a distance. Can anybody do that? Can I excommunicate people from other people's churches? No. John, John, Paul, all of these individuals, the apostles, they were large and in charge. They were head of the church. Diotrephus is not an apostle, right? Some of you remember in Awana, you've learned the names of the apostles, all 12 of them plus Paul, the 13th apostle, right? But Diotrephus isn't in any of those lists because Diotrephus is not an apostle, right? He's under the apostles. He's probably a church leader, He's probably the senior pastor. That's what he is. He's probably a senior pastor of this local church. So he has some authority, but not that of the Apostle Paul. But again, he doesn't, or the Apostle John, he doesn't have the spirit of John. He is not humble, but rather he is arrogant. He is not about building up others, but he's rather about building up himself. He's a leader, but he's not a leader that wants to serve, but he's a leader that wants to be served. Now, Jesus warned about these kind of people. In Matthew chapter 20, he says this. But Jesus called them the apostles, who was going to be the head of the church. He called those to himself. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be among you. So, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So here's what's going on. He calls the apostles to himself and said, you guys are going to become the leaders of the church. But when you become the leaders of the church, I don't want you to operate how the Gentiles operate. And the Gentiles is a reference to unbelievers. So you guys are to be Christian leaders, and you guys are to be different than unbelieving leaders. And how are you to be different? When unbelievers want leadership... They want to use it to lord it over them. And those who have great authority exercise it over them. In other words, they want to self-aggrandize. They want to feed their own bellies. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a boss like this? 
that used his power to exploit you. <laughs> right? He was sitting back, doing nothing, making you do all the work, and then he would get all the credit. We probably had some bosses like this. At least this is a stereotype of a boss. And sometimes that stereotype is true. That people use their authority to make you their servant so that they don't have to do anything. And instead, make you do it all. He says, no, that's not the way it ought to be. Rather, if you want to be great, which is nothing wrong with being great. Did you see that? He didn't say, if you want to be great, sinner. If you want to be great, bad perspective. No. He says, if you want to be great, that's fine. It's good to be great. But be great by being a slave, not an overlord. He totally flips it on its head. Be great, but be great in the path of slavery, in the path of servitude, just like the Son of Man. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to use leadership, use authority, use our talents, our privileges, our advantages for the benefit of others. But the world, the flesh, the devil wants you to use those same talents, same authority, same abilities, same glories to make it so that you have other people serve you. And that's exactly what's going on with Diotrephus here. He loves to have preeminence. He loves to be number one. He loves to be the boss. He loves to be the best. Why? Because he wanted to put himself first to be served by others. But notice something else. Look at verse 9 again. Not only does he want to be the best, but it says he does not receive us. Now, who's the us? Who's the us in verse 9? He doesn't receive us. Who's the us? The apostles. He doesn't receive rightful authority. And it's nothing, another thing we get about Diotrephus. He loves to be first, and he wants to be served, but he doesn't want to serve. And he loves for other people to listen to him, but he refuses to listen to anybody else. He says, respect my authority, but then refuses to respect other people's authority. Diotrephus is a true hypocrite. He says, you must obey me, but then he rebels against his own authority. He wants to rule, but he doesn't want to be ruled over. Now, again, this is not who we should be. This is a bad example. This is something that we should watch out for. We don't want to be like this. Now, we get a further description of Diotrephus in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Therefore, if I come... I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, talking nonsense against us, that's the apostles, with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, but forbids them who wish to, putting them out of the church. So not only does he reject rightful authority, but he slanders rightful authority. Do you see that? He doesn't just say, I won't listen to them, but then he tells other people not to listen to them. Now, be careful, because Diotrephus is a slanderer. Diotrephus slanders rightful authority. He slanders the people of God. He slanders the words of God. He slanders the truth. Just know that. If you have somebody slandering rightful authority, be careful. You might have a Diotrephus before you. Now, of course, most people, when they hear slander, don't think of it as slander. They think of it as juicy information. Right? We love to hear the latest scoop. Every time I go to Walmart, not Aldi's, thankfully, my favorite store, but Walmart, Safeway, Target, when I go to the checkout aisle, I'm, in, I'm unfortunately, I have to be uh, in the presence of a bunch of magazines. I call them the slander magazines. Always some kind of slanderous accusation being uh, spoken of there. Right? You know why they put them there? It's the same reason they put candy there. You ever seen health food there? Nuts and stuff? No, you never see that kind of stuff, right? You only see the candies, the sweets, and the slander. Why? Because we love it. They're, they're hoping that you will impulse buy candy, soda, and a slander magazine. And guess what? You do. Maybe not you, but somebody does. That's why they're there. They make a lot of money in that slander aisle, that sugar aisle, that soda aisle. Don't be that. Don't listen to Diotrephes. Don't listen to his slander. He is a rebel. And not only that, he abuses his power. If you look at verse 10, notice that he uses church discipline to his own advantage. 
people want to receive the people of God, and he doesn't want them to receive them. So when they receive them, he kicks them out of the church. This is someone who abuses their authority and is an awful human being. He uses his authority to ostracize those who refuse to listen to that or listen to him, and he pushes them to the outside of the community. Now, here's, here's the point of all of this. Diotrephus still exists today. He's still here. He's not someone just simply in the past. This is a type of person that continues to exist today. Now, can anyone think of a Diotrephus, maybe even, that existed or exists within the Reformed community? Because surely the Reformed community would never tolerate this kind of person, someone who seeks their furs, someone who abuses their power, somebody who's a bully, somebody who slanders authority. We, the Reformed, would never tolerate something like this, right? Because Reformed is the perfect church and doesn't have any problems. Right? Okay. That was sarcasm. Right? We are not the perfect church, and we can have problems. In fact, this person did exist within the Reformed church. He was this at a long time. His name was Mark Driscoll. That's what he was. That's exactly the type of person he was. He was an example of someone who sought his first. He was using his authority to bully others. He was clearly unqualified. And yet most people refused to say anything against him. They stood on the sidelines. They justified his crudeness, his bulliness, and all these other things until it became so much that they could no longer defend him. And he was kicked out. Thankfully, he was kicked out, but how long did it take for him to be kicked out? How many people defended him, saying he's God's man, doing God's work? Look at his big church. He's reaching the people, and they justified this kind of behavior. Now, why did people justify Mark Driscoll? Why? Why do people justify Diotrephus? Well, let me tell you why. They're usually very highly gifted individuals. They're usually very good-looking. They usually have deceitfully good, charming abilities, and they're usually highly intelligent. In other words, they usually fit exactly what the world is looking for when they're looking for a leader. In fact, interesting about Mark Driscoll, just an interesting historical fact about him, what, you know one of those things they used to be called yearbooks? Like, you know, when people had little pictures and had students and they had all these pictures, right? And sometimes in those yearbooks, they would nominate certain people for certain things, Right? They would say, like, the most eccentric person. By the way, here's a little fun fact. I'm embarrassed my wife. In, in our yearbook, in our graduating class, Stephanie was nominated as the most eccentric person in our class. So she got that nomination. Well, there was, another, there was a nomination in Mark Driscoll's uh, yearbook that said, most likely to succeed. Who was the most likely person to succeed in Mark Driscoll's graduating class? Do you know who? You could probably figure it out. Mark Driscoll. They saw him. You think his school was full of Christians? No. They recognized that Mark Driscoll had attributes that was going to make him most likely to succeed. It was that person. Not the weirdo. Not the strange person. Not the person that had no friends. It was this guy that his classmates said, you're going to succeed. You have it all. He was nominated by them to be the most likely to succeed. And succeed he did do until he failed. Why? Because he had everything that the world was looking for. Again, he was highly gifted, he was good looking, he had deceitful charm, and he was highly intelligent. This is exactly like Saul. Here's a biblical example of this. Saul. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to get a description of Saul. Saul was the first king. Remember the people? We want a king. We want a king like the rest of the people. We're tired of just having God as our king. We want a king just like the nations. And so they sought a king just like the nations, and they got one just like the nations, just like the world. And so here's a description of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Now, Kish is not Saul. Kish is Saul's dad. Okay? But the beginning of the description of Saul begins with Saul's dad. Why? We'll find out. So there was a Benjamin whose name was Kish, a Benjamite. He was a mighty man of power. Who's the mighty man? Kish. Everybody see that, right? Kish, Saul's dad, is a mighty man of power. Verse 2 starts describing Saul. 
And he, that's Kish, had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. This one, there was not one more handsome of a person among all the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the other people. So here's the description of Saul. Number one, his dad is awesome. Did everybody see that? His dad is from Benjamin. He's a mighty man of power. His dad is rich. His dad is powerful. His dad has influence. He grew up in the right type of home. Everybody see that? How often does that happen, by the way? How often do you have an R.C. Sproul and you get an R.C. Sproul Jr.? I don't know how people don't figure this out. Just because your dad is great doesn't mean you will be great. But somehow we always fall into that trap. Your dad is powerful. Your dad is amazing. Your dad was godly. Therefore, you just must be godly, right? And so since he was the head of the church, then let's just bring the son up and make the son the head of the church. And then we're surprised when he doesn't follow that way. The point is that he grew up in the right home. Saul had a great dad. What else did he have? He was choice. He was handsome. In fact, he was super handsome. Anybody see that? He wasn't just good looking. He was really good looking. It says that he was better looking than anybody else. This guy had it all together. And he wasn't just good looking. He was tall. He was a tall guy. Did you know that people like tall people from a long time ago? Being tall was great. Still is great. People like tall people. He was tall. Not just tall. He was a lot taller. In fact, it says that he was, everyone else came up to his shoulders. Right? There's probably somebody in this church that I come up to their shoulders. They're probably six foot something. This is really tall. He's much taller than these people, which means he's also much stronger than these people. So again, let's look at the description of Saul. He comes from the right family. He was choice. He was extremely handsome. In fact, better looking than anybody else. And he was an entire foot taller than everybody else, which meant he was very strong. He was probably a very good speaker. He probably had a commanding presence. They demanded a king. They wanted a leader. And so they got Saul. Now, this Saul-like figure who has all of those things, notice none of them about godliness. None of them are about his character. That's what they wanted. They wanted a king. They wanted a leader. They wanted a visionary. They got a Saul. And we know how it turned out with him. Well, the question is this. What are you looking for in a leader? When you look for a leader, whether it's a church leader or any other leader, looking for a pastor, what are you looking for? Are you looking for this list? What family does he come from? Is he good looking? Is he of the right race? Some churches, two different philosophies here. Some churches says this. We have a certain culture of the church. Right? This is the church growth movement kind of idea. We want a cowboy church. We want a hipster church, right? We want a smoker church. We want a drunker church. Okay, people don't say that, but you can find those churches too. They're looking for this culture of a church and they have this image. And they say, okay, we're going to have this culture of the church. We've got to dim the lights, all these things, right? We've got to design the church to meet a certain audience. And then we need the leadership to fit that audience. So if we want young people, we've got to have a young pastor, we want hip people, we've got to have a hip pastor. And we can't have the associate pastor not being hip either. We need the pastoral team to be hip and with it. And so it's called the principle of homogeneity. Okay? This is the principle of racism. That's what happens. That's, that's a nice way of saying that. If there's a black church, we need black leadership. The white church, we need white leadership. Okay? So you see what they're doing. Their standard of leadership is not biblical. It has to do with race and has to do with things that aren't have anything to do with morality. Now, most people today don't like that. They see as obvious a cloak for racism, and it's not good. Okay, good. So you might be more progressive. You're not like those people, right? You don't care about race. You're just looking for diversity. That's not nothing to do with race, though. We just want our church to look like a college campus with diversity, right? And we want to, you can't get it, so we're going to artificially make it happen. We're going to discriminate some people. You get other people in, and so forth and so on. But, but that's not a problem. Yes, it is. That's the same thing. Don't you see it? The point is that leadership should have nothing to do with race. It should have nothing to do with what they look like. It should have nothing to do with whether they're from a majority culture or a minority culture. It's nothing to do with the fact that they're hip or cool or intelligent or smart or beautiful or taller or stronger or have muscles. This should have nothing to do with the type of leader that we're looking for. What did the Lord say? First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. Talking about Saul. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So here's the point of all this, once again. When we are looking for leaders, when we are looking for heroes, it should not be based on what man sees, the outward appearance, but it should be about what God sees, namely the heart, their character, their person. Who are they? Does anybody know who replaced Saul as the next king? God said, I reject you. You don't obey me. You might be handsome. You might come from a good family. You might have the same race, whether majority or minority. All these stuff. Commanding present, visionary. Boom, you got it. But you're not obeying me, so you're out of here. And he replaced them with a man after his own heart, which was David. This is true leadership. So, once again, the question is, what are we looking for in our leaders? What are we looking for in our heroes? The things that God values or the things that the world values? Who are your heroes? Who are your leaders? You know, I can pretty much tell most of the things I need to tell about you by just finding out who your heroes are. Right? Who are your heroes? Are your heroes fitting Saul-like characteristics? Beautiful, handsome, powerful, wealth, these kind of things? Or are your heroes people who have David-like characteristics? Godly, man after God's own heart. To to really uh, put this point home, consider the qualifications that Diotrephus obviously did not fulfill of an actual church leader. What was God actually looking for in a leader? We find this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You might want to turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we get this description of what God is looking for in a godly man. An elder specifically, but really this is the description of a godly man. It says this, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of an overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, that's being a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? He's not to be a novice, lest he be puffed up with pride. He fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now notice you didn't see anything about handsomeness, you didn't see anything about culture, you didn't see anything about being hip, being young, being visionary, none of that. You see about being a godly person. That is the type of leaders that we should want. That should be our hero. So I go back to ask you this. Who are your heroes? Are your heroes the people who are on Instagram, on social media? Are these your heroes? Are the Sauls of the world your heroes? If they're not your heroes, they're most people's heroes. Isn't that true? Most people's heroes are Saul. Most people's heroes are Mark Driscoll. Most people's heroes are Diotrephus. What I'm suggesting to you is, let the Apostle John be your hero. Let Christ be your hero. Let some godly people be your hero. Let them be the people that you ascribe to be. Let those be the characteristics that you value. Diotrephus is empowered because he has the world's characteristics. But Diotrephus can be dethroned if we have God's perspective and recognize that those are not valuable in the sight of God. That what's valuable in the sight of God are the things that we see in the Word of God and the characteristics of the people of God. All right, so let's keep going. Let's go back to verse 1 of 3 John. 3 John, verse 1. The elder, the author is identified, it's John. He's the elder. And he writes this specifically to a person, and that person's name is Gaius. He says that this is the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now, who is Gaius? You can search your Bible. There's a bunch of people in the Bible named Gaius. Here's the problem. The name Gaius is an extremely common name. It's like John Smith. Who's John Smith? Could you imagine having the name John Smith and somebody trying to look you up on Facebook? It'd be hopeless. You just never find them. And, and that's exactly what's going on here. Gaius was just such an extremely uh, common name that we don't know exactly who he is. But here's what we do know about him. We know that he's a Christian. We know that he's a convert of John's ministry, or at very least, 
He is someone who's deeply affected by John's ministry, and that's really all we know about him, and that's all we really need to know about him. He's a Christian. He probably is a convert of John. And because of that, that qualifies him for the very next thing that we see described about him in verse 1. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Why does John love Gaius, John Smith? Why does he love him? Because he's a Christian. Because he's a fellow brother in the Lord. He's one of the people of God. He's a child of God. That's good enough for him. Is that good enough for you? Will you love someone simply because they name the name of Christ? Is that good enough? If you find out this person is a believer, will love automatically flow from your heart? Because it should. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. If you love the Father, you love all of His kids. You know, this happened to me in a very stark way. I have five kids. I remember when my first kid was born, Despite knowing conceptually that there was a baby inside my wife's womb and sometimes feeling the kicks and seeing the weird arms sticking out of her stomach sometimes, it just didn't really feel like a baby. I just got it into my mind, but I really, there was something magical that happened when a baby came out. I don't know if that happened to you, but that, that was at least dad, at least this dad's experience. That I knew there was a baby, but it really didn't hit me until I saw the baby. Okay. And so I remember that the baby came out, and uh, I wondered how I would emotionally feel about that child. I just didn't know. I mean, again, I cared about the baby when it was born as a concept, but I just didn't feel all warm and fuzzy. Don't tell my wife about that. I just didn't feel all warm and fuzzy. It was just a concept. But then as soon as the baby was born and I saw the baby, I loved that child. It was amazing of how much I loved the child. It was mine. Nobody was going to hurt the child over my dead body, right? I fell in love with the child immediately, all the warm fuzzies. I actually cried. Um, but then, I, that was baby number one, Malachi. Baby number two, I wondered, could I love the other child like I loved Malachi? Because I didn't choose to love Malachi. It just happened. I wondered. Baby came out. I didn't cry that time. But I still loved him immediately because it was mine. And after that, I started to think, I'm going to love all the other kids. And guess what? I did Every single new kid that came out, I automatically loved them. And I've actually heard that this question of can you love another child is actually a question that many parents have, especially after they have the first child. They think, my heart is full. I have this child. My heart's full. I can't possibly love another child. And another child comes out, and boom, heart stretched like the Grinch. Remember Grinch? Little tiny little heart. Boop. It went up. Every time you have a kid, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so here's the point. I loved those kids because they were mine, just because they were mine. Well, this is the way we're supposed to be about the people of God. You love them just because they're His, because they belong to the Father. Let me give you a different metaphor, give an analogy. Does anybody have a weird sibling? Sibling that's just a little weird, a little off, a little strange. And some of those siblings, if we're honest, and they weren't our siblings, don't tell them this. But they weren't our siblings, they would not be our friend. We'd be blocking them on Facebook, not talking to them, moving if they were our neighbor. Just, we're just not really that compatible, right? But guess what? They are your sibling. They're not that weird person on Facebook, on social media. They're actually related to you. And so when Thanksgiving comes, you hang out with them, right? And you spend time with them. And sometimes these siblings have rivalries, they even, like, beat each other up. Right? You've seen that? They're always fighting each other and beating each other up, and there's almost like a hostility between them. But let me tell you something. Let me teach you a lesson from the hood. Let me teach you. Let me teach you something. If you have two siblings that don't like each other, okay, and you decide to mess with one of those siblings, that other sibling is probably going to jump you. They're probably going to beat you up, even if they don't like each other. Why? Because there's some connection there. Even though... They don't always get along. They're still their family. They still are a unit. Right? Does anybody get that? Does anybody feel that? Okay. Well, that's what's supposed to be true about the people of God. Sometimes they're a little weird, a little strange, a little annoying. Sometimes they get on your nerves. Sometimes they do you wrong. Right? But guess what? You still love them. You still care about them. 
You're still there for them. That's what's going on here. Gaius is loved by John because he knows the truth. And you, too, should love the people of God even when they're a little strange and a little weird and they get on your nerves because they're your family, because they belong to God. Jesus actually said, the way that people would know that you are my disciple. How? Because you love Spurgeon. Because you tattoo the five solos on your chest. No. Not even because you go show up to church. All those things, besides the tattooing, the five solos on your chest, are pretty much good things. Okay? But the way that we know, or the world will know, that we are the disciples of Jesus, he says, by this, people will know that you are my disciples. That you have love for one another. The love of the people of God. Identify the people of God. Okay? This, this is how we're identified. We love because we have been loved, and we love the people of God because they are the people of God. So, how does John respond to this love for Gaius? It's not just in word only. He, he doesn't say, I love you, but then really doesn't care about him. It's not just a check the block thing. This actually results in action. And we can see that in verse 2. John's love for Gaius expresses itself in verse 2. He says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So what this looks like is one of the ways that John expresses his love for Gaius is one, by telling him that, and two, by praying for him. Do you see that? It's really hard to hate someone that you pray for. It's really, really hard. Let me just tell you, that's kind of a recipe for forgiveness. If somebody offends you, pray for them. Pray God bless them. And not only pray for them, but sometimes just be that act of blessing. It's really difficult to hate someone as you actually bless them. Actually bless them. As you actually bring them a meal. And not spit in it. No, don't do that. Just bring them a real meal. And say, I love you. I'm bringing this to be a blessing to you. And you'll see that love flows. But again, the point is, is that John says that he loves Gaius. And then he shows that he loves Gaius by praying for Gaius. Okay? And so I would exhort you to do likewise. If you pray for the people of God, if you love the people of God, then pray for the people of God. If somebody has a need, if somebody has a concern, a problem, these kind of things, are you concerned about it? Will you bring that person to the Lord? Will you intercede? And that's what he does. He intercedes. Now, what does he intercede for Gaius about? He intercedes about two things. Everybody see it? The first thing he prays for Gaius about is his health. Okay? And this is contrasted with his soul prospering. So we don't need to spiritualize health to make that spiritual health. It's not spiritual health. He's praying for his actual health, his physical health. He is concerned about the physical needs of Gaius. He doesn't want him sick. And that should be obvious. If you love someone, you don't want them sick. You don't want them hurt. You don't want them injured. Sometimes... We become more spiritual than the Bible. Did you know that? People become more spiritual than the Bible. They think that their spirituality sometimes supersedes the Bible. Let me tell you one way that this happens. This happens a whole bunch of ways. But let me tell you one way. One way is people complain about praying for health needs. I've been that person, by the way. We shouldn't be praying about health needs. That's wrong. It's unbiblical. We should be praying about health needs, right? Did, did Jesus have that attitude as he walked around the earth? Oh, you have a health need? Oh, no, I'm not concerned about you. Just bring the tax collectors and sinners to me. You just have a sick mom. Remember Peter? His mom? I think it was his stepmom. She was sick. He brought, Peter brought the mother to Jesus for her healing. This is, this is, this is good. This is what it means to love people is actually care about what's going on in their physical lives. Don't complain about praying about people's health needs. And let me just tell you this too. People who usually complain about praying about people's health needs are healthy people. Not sick people. You're sick. You're going to see very quickly you want people praying about your health needs. Because they're important to you. It's only not important because it's someone else's health need. But if it was yours, you'd care. And we should care. So he prays about their health need. Another a great beautiful thing about uh, this reality is this verse helps us to fight against the Greek Gnostic idea that the body is bad and the soul is good. Sometimes that idea creeps in. It doesn't matter. The physical doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's useless. It's valueless. It's whatever. Um, only the spiritual matters. So that's not true. The physical does matter. And that's why he's praying about the physical. Remember Genesis chapter 1, where God saw everything that he had made, including the physical. Or should I say more accurately, specifically the physical. 
He saw everything that he made, and he saw that it was good. In fact, very good. God created the world, and he's, he loves the world. And so we should actually want people to prosper physically and be of good health. We shouldn't want people poor. Somebody is poor. Somebody is in debt. Somebody is hungry. We should care about that. Don't be so spiritual that you somehow think they shouldn't care about people's actual physical health needs, people physical wealth needs, right? Care about those things. If you want to serve somebody and help somebody, maybe that looks like telling them an encouraging message, sending them an encouraging message. Something spiritual is what I'm saying. Maybe that looks like having a spiritual conversation. But guess what? If somebody's moving, like Will, remember Will? He's gone. Very sad. But Will, he moved. He moved to Alabama. He recently, when he moved, had a U-Haul. He didn't need God blessed you. Right? God bless you. I love you, Will. I'm praying for you. Thank you. Are you going to come help me move? Right? Because he was picking up a piano. Your God bless you didn't help him with that. You getting over there helping him with the piano helped him with that. Okay? So here's the point of this. We can bless people in the spiritual, which we should do, but also in the physical. And don't be so heavenly minded that you think that the physical don't matter. It will matter when you're moving that piano and breaking your back because nobody will help you. I'll put it differently. If you do help that person, you are doing them a real good. You are truly loving them. That is not a lesser thing. That is a real thing. God's word says, if you bring someone a cup of cold water in my name, you will not lose your reward. So I'm not discouraging people from ministering to people's spiritual needs, but I'm also encouraging you to don't be ashamed about ministering to people's physical needs, praying about people's physical needs. Needs. Somebody needs you to help them with something physical, then show up. Help if you can. All right. The other idea, though, which we is a much more real problem, is us minimizing the spiritual. And John doesn't make that mistake either. He prays that he may prosper in all things in health and with his soul. The physical and the spiritual intertwine. intertwine. He's concerned about both. He's not just concerned about helping him move. But he's concerned about how Will's going to do when he has moved. Is he going to show up to a church? Is he going to plug in? He's concerned about both. And so should we. But there is a mistake here. Is Just because John is concerned about the physical and the spiritual, a mistake might be that John is equally concerned about the physical and the spiritual. And that is a huge mistake. And it's not true. Just because the physical and the spiritual both matter, to John, and more importantly, both matter to God, doesn't mean that they matter equally. Consider the words of Jesus. He says this, But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Or what will he give in exchange for his own soul? Catch the contrast here. You get everything that the world has to offer. Health, wealth, and prosperity. This is the prosperity message, right? You get it all. But you lose something most important, namely your soul. He says, what is that profit? What value is that? Is that a good deal? Sometimes I read this little track, this little track, a little comic book, has little pictures. I love those tracks. Not everything about them, but I, I still love them. And in those tracks, there's one track where a guy sells his soul to the devil. And he sells his soul to the devil, and what does he sell it for? For riches. And he gets rich. And he's living it up, and this, he says, this is the best deal ever. I'm so glad that I sold my soul to the devil. But then, at the end of his life, he gets sick. He starts to get ready to die, and he regrets that decision. Right? And you can hopefully see that. If you could actually sell your soul to the devil, and you would actually get riches, it might seem like a good deal as long as you had those riches. But as death started to approach, and you began to get to the end of your life, you would hopefully see that that was an awful deal. Because this life is very short. This life is very fleeting. The, Moses says that this life is about 70 years. Do you realize that? If, if, if things go well for you, and I know everybody thinks they're the exception. Everybody knows a 100-year-old person. I think the oldest person alive is 112. Everybody's going to be that person for some reason. I don't know why. You're not. I doubt any of you are going to be that person. The Bible says that your life is 70 years by way of strength of 80 there's the exception. Some people make 90, some people make 100. But you're probably going to die by the time you're 70 or 80 years old. In fact, I bet you there's, you know somebody who died who didn't reach 70. Does anybody know those people? Anybody bury people? 
You know, if you come to my house one day, all of you are invited, by the way. Come to my house. If you haven't come to my house, come to my house. We'll have time. We'll have a good time. If you come to my house, a couple doors down, you're going to see a fence where a road used to be. You still see the road, but you can't go through that road anymore. There's a fence there. And sometimes people say, why is there a fence there? I'll tell you why there's a fence there. Because outside of the fence, there's a hill. I want you to imagine this. There's a hill, and there's a road, and there's a fence blocking off the road, and you could go across. You used to be able to go across, but now you can't. So some people ask me, why can't you go across? Let me tell you why. Because four years ago, a little 12-year-old girl walked across that street and got crushed and died and perished. That's why. We all have stories like that. We all know people who did not make it to their old age. I can list dozens of stories. People at 50 having heart attacks. People at 30. In fact, there's a young man I know. He has eye cancer. He beat it once. It came back. The doctor said, you have about a zero chance of survival. He's 19 years old. He's almost certainly going to die. Here's the point. You may have 70 years. You may not. Even if you have 70, even if you have 80, even if you have 100, time is ticking. These days are evil. What is the profit of man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? So this is where I segue all the way back to the beginning of the sermon. Are you ready to meet the Lord? Have you given your life to the Lord? It is so easy. Sometimes I wonder if the way of salvation was hard, if it was fasting three days in a row, if it was climbing some mountain, would you do it? I think most of you would. But the way of salvation is so easy. All it says is, Repent, believe, look to Christ, call upon his name, tell him that you're sorry for your sin, that you turn away from your sin, you accept what he did on that cross, dying for your sins, rising on the third day, and you give your life to him. That's it. You are one prayer away from salvation. Did you know that? All who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, that's all you have to do. All you have to do is believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. You can get saved in the next five minutes, the next five seconds. That's all you have to do. And yet some of you sit here week after week, year after year, at least in not this church, some church, and refuse to believe. Why? Why? Why not let today be the day of salvation? Why not call upon his name and be saved? You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And I can promise you this. The Christian life is a better life. God's ways are better than the world's. You may feel like you'll lose everything, but you'll actually gain the whole world and you'll gain this world in return. So call upon his name. Let me leave you with this one last message and one last terror that I have. In Hebrews chapter 3, it says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart in the day of rebellion. You've got to understand this. If you feel God's drawing, if the Lord is near, find him. Because guess what? You may not be able to find him in that day. If you continue to delay, you may no longer hear the voice of God. You may no longer feel his drawing. And that's a, ter- a truly terrifying thing. When you're so hardened, when you're so resisted, when you're so put off your salvation that when you finally want it, you can't get it anymore. Did you know that's true? If you question that, open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 1. Read it. That's what it says. It talks about wisdom. He's calling out, crying out, come to me, you simple ones, and I'll give you my spirit. I will save you. But it says they refused. And so the time ran out. And then it says... Calamity will come upon you. You will get to the end of your days. You will start getting close to death. And then you'll try to come. And it says, though you seek me diligent, you you will not find me. Though you cry out, I will laugh at your calamity. There's a time to come. And then that door is shut forever. That door is shut forever when you die. But sadly, that door can shut even while you are yet alive. If you harden yourself to the things of God. So, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon his name. If you want to talk to somebody, you can talk to me. I'll pray with you. I'll talk to you. I'll preach the gospel to you. Believe, look to Christ, and be saved. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that the way of salvation is so easy. So easy a child can do it. Lord, we pray that if there be anyone here that does not know you, that they would come. They would taste and see that the Lord is good. They would believe and that they would be saved. Lord, we pray that for the vast majority of the people here, they are probably already saved. Lord, we pray that they would search and seek to be mature in Christ, that they would seek to be, like the Apostle John, humble Christians, 
who love others, who pray for others, who serve others, physical and spiritual needs, and they would not be diatrophists, seeking preeminence, slandering people, seeking to be served instead of to serve others. God, let us be people of love, not in word only, but in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.